I'll invite you now to take your copy of God's word and turn to 1 Thessalonians. And if you would, now stand with me as we read verses 5 through 10. I know we looked at verse 5 last week, but we're going to use verse 5 this week as well because it kind of bridges the gap between what we saw last week and what we're going to see this week. So I'm going to back up and read that verse as well. This is the word of the Lord. Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, you knew what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia and and for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that you need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to gods from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. This morning, as we close out this first chapter in 1 Thessalonians, we're considering the mission of God for his church. I want to just be abundantly clear this morning what I'm talking about. We are talking about the mission of God for his church, not a part of the mission of God for his church, not one segment of it, but why the church of God exists in this world. What we are supposed to do, what our responsibility is, why God has left us here as foreigners in a strange land, that our job is to make disciples that make disciples. I want to begin this morning with an illustration. I uh, enjoy, as I think every red-blooded American should, a good steak. You like a good steak? I like a good steak. Amen, right? I mean, I get any other amens, but I get amen for steak. And you know something that's always baffled me? You go to a steakhouse, you go somewhere out back, you go to uh, Texas Roadhouse, you go to Longhorn, they got steaks on the menu, like they should, because they're a steakhouse, right? But do you know that they also have chicken on the menu? I have no idea why they have chicken on the menu. Because... A steakhouse exists for a purpose, right? To sell you steak. They don't exist to sell you chicken. And maybe you're the kind of person that goes to a steakhouse and gets chicken. Listen, this is, this is a lighthearted illustration. You don't have to come to me and explain to me why you order chicken at Outback. It's, it's really going to be okay. My wife doesn't order steak at Outback either. But for, for somebody that just loves like red meat, it's hard for me to fathom going to a place like an Outback or a Longhorn and ordering something like chicken because it seems as if, if that place is going to call itself a steakhouse, I probably ought to get steak because that's why the place exists. That's its purpose is to serve good steak, red meat. Well, the point of the church, just like a point of a steakhouse is to serve steak, the point of the church is the mission of God to make disciples. Now, some churches will phrase that a little differently and it's fine. The goal is not to, to uh, make, uh, make much of the way we say it here. The way we say our mission is we, simply, we are driven by our mission to make disciples that make disciples. 
And we just wanna be as clear and as concise as we possibly can about the mission of this gathered group of people. And it's not about the way that we say it. It's about what we do, that that's why we exist. And some of you come here week after week and instead of participating in what we are designed to do, it is like you go to the steakhouse and order chicken. You look for, and I'm sure the chicken at these places are good. They probably cook chicken well, but it's not why they exist. And maybe you come here week after week because you enjoy the music, because you have good friends here, because it is a tradition in your life that you get up on Sunday mornings and you come to this place at this location and you've done that for years, decades even. These are not bad things. It's not a bad thing to have a tradition of going to church on Sunday morning. It's not a bad thing that this is where you find community. It's not a bad thing that you enjoy the music. It, none, of, none of that is wrong, but it's not the point. It's not why we exist. Why we exist as a local body of believers is to accomplish the mission of God of making disciples here and around the world. I want us to see this morning from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 that we are joining in a mission that has existed since the beginning of the church itself. And that mission has been carried on from generation to generation by faithful Christians. And we cannot drop the baton, but must continue to pass it on all the way until the Lord returns. So let's see how we then make disciples. First, disciples make disciples by example. If you go back into verse five, which again, we considered last week and look at the second half of that, Paul says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Now, Paul ended that opening section of his uh, prayer for them, his greeting towards them, his thanksgiving towards them by saying, we demonstrated to you who we are uh, who we were, who we are in the gospel, because that's what the first part of his thanksgiving was concerned about. His first part was concerned about their Christian ethic, that they were able to prove by their works, by their works of uh, faith, love, and hope that they had received the gospel. And Paul brings that full circle by saying, we demonstrated these things to you. We proved among you who we were for your sake, so you could see then how you are supposed to live. So Paul's already drawn attention to the fact that in his short period of time, him and Silas and Timothy, this mission team on his second missionary journey in Thessalonica, that short period of time they had, they demonstrated what it means to follow Christ, not only in word, but in deed. Now he's saying, you've become imitators of that. Look at the beginning of verse six. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. So it's clear here in Paul's mind that part of the disciple-making process, not all of it, but part of the disciple-making process is, set an, is setting an example of what it means to follow Jesus. And Paul has already told them, for, for you, it's 
faith, it's love, it's hope. These are the kind of works that he hoped would spring forth from them. And he was able to receive a a report back when Timothy had rejoined his uh, mission team after going back to Thessalonica. He was able to celebrate and say, these things exist inside of you where it's evident that you have faith, hope, and love in your congregation and you're demonstrating these things in your lives. And they learned these things by example from Paul and Timothy and Silas. And they have now become imitators of us, meaning that mission team, and ultimately of the Lord. And if we're going to join in with this church and say, this is the mission of God for his church, then we need to ask this question. Do we do this as well? Do we invite people to follow us? Do they look at us and see Christ? Do they look at us and see the evidence of gospel belief as we looked at last week? And this isn't the only place Paul talks about imitation as a part of the disciple-making process. It's actually a regular theme in his letters. It shows up twice in the book of 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul writes, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Now quickly, he didn't have a whole lot to celebrate about the church at Corinth, even though he spent a whole lot more time in Corinth than he did in Thessalonica. He only spent maybe a matter of weeks in Thessalonica. He spent a year and a half in Corinth. He actually wrote to, he wrote this letter while in Corinth, most likely. And yet they didn't always get it. And so he's having to really admonish them in some things. And he says, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then be imitators of me. Can we join in with Paul in inviting people to do this? Is this part of our disciple-making process where we look at younger people in the faith, not necessarily just younger people, notice what I said, younger people in the faith, and say, I'm going to set an example of Christ for you. I'm going to show you what it means to follow Jesus by the way that I live. You see, Paul wasn't perfect. In another letter, he calls himself the chief of sinners. Paul recognized that he still struggled against the flesh. Elsewhere, he says, I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I want to do, right? The same battle that all of us have is we experience new life in Christ and yet still have a sin nature that wants to draw us away from that. But he doesn't use that sin nature as an excuse to not disciple people according to the way that he sets an example for them. He tells these newer believers, imitate me. Later in 1 Corinthians in chapter 11, he says it again, be imitators of me. But then he stretches this, as I am of Christ. Very similar to what he says in verse 6 of 1 Thessalonians 1. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. See, our goal shouldn't be that we have people that look like us and talk like us and sound like us. Our goal should be, as we set an example of disciple-making for people, that they don't begin to look like us. They begin to look like Jesus. Discipleship is passing on the imitation of Christ. It's not about passing on the imitation of your politics or your preferences or your personality. It's about passing on your imitation of Christ. Be an imitator of me as I am as as an imitator of Christ, Paul says. And this is exactly what he affirms in the church at Thessalonica, that they had become imitators of him and thus of the Lord. 
Hear me, church. If we are going to make disciples of people, we have to set an example of what it means to be a disciple. In our homes, in our congregation, as we send out mission teams, as we interact with people, even outside of these walls, the question is, are we inviting people to imitate us as we imitate Christ? Go back there into verse six though. And notice what he says, for you receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. When Paul says you became an imitator of me, he has something very specific in mind as well. See, the primary marker of the Thessalonians believers' willingness to imitate Paul was their reception of the word at all cost. Paul, even though this is, he's only maybe halfway through his second missionary journey, had already experienced much persecution. And the persecution would only ramp up into his later missionary journeys. And he writes to the church at Thessalonica and he says, you're imitating me because you receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. How in the world can he tie the idea of affliction and joy? That seems so two completely separate ideas to our world that we are either afflicted or we have joy that we can't have both. But Paul says that the Thessalonican believers had both, that they followed Paul in the example of even being persecuted for their faith and yet they had joy of the Holy Spirit, another evidence of belief that even in the face of persecution, these Christians are able to find joy and they're marked by it. It is really the primary marker of their imitation of the apostle and his mission team and ultimately their imitation of the Lord. During his first missionary journey in Acts chapter 14, we read, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. So this is a guy writing to this group of believers who has already been stoned and left for dead. But then the disciples gathered about him and he rose up and entered the city. Paul gets up by the power of God as if nothing has happened, goes into the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derb. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And watch what it says. And saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Endurance of persecution and affliction has been a part of the gospel message from the beginning. And this is what we call people to imitate. It's what Paul called them to imitate and it's what we should still generations later call people to imitate. Following Christ no matter the cost. Following Christ even in the face of affliction and persecution. Following Christ when it is unpopular. Following Christ when it could even lead as it ultimately does in Paul's life and seemingly did here in Acts 14 to death. In his letters to in his letter to the church in Rome, he writes, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and of children and heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in, a, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Suffering with Christ is a sign of belief. There was no separation from, between affliction and joy or faith and suffering within the New Testament. These things came hand in hand. And it seems to us to be a crazy thing to call someone to imitate, yet that is exactly what Paul does. 
And these believers do it to a point that they become a regional example of faithfulness. Look at verse 7 again. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. This is basically all of Greece. This is, so Macedonia is where Thessalonica was, the northern section of Greece. Achaia is where Corinth is, where Paul is writing from, in the southern section of Greece. And notice what he says, you have been an example to all of these people by the way that you've been willing to embrace Christ and following and our example, even to the point of suffering. Now, maybe you're in here today and you think, Ben, you're talking about the mission of the church. I'm not really even a part of the church. I'm just here. I'm learning about this. Somebody brought me here today. What is this that you're talking about? And I just want to be really frank and honest with you. To follow Christ and to imitate Christ and to imitate Paul and the apostles and to imitate the generations of Christians that have come before is a call to suffer. It's a call to suffer. I don't believe we talk about this enough in American Christianity because we have equated suffering with disobedience, which by the way is exactly what first century Jewish people did. It's what the Pharisees did. They thought someone that was suffering was suffering because they had done something wrong. And Jesus and the apostles turned that on its head. We should see suffering as an imitation of Christ. And this is what the gospel calls you to. If you're here today because you want to know the truth of Jesus, understand this. Jesus offers you eternal life, but that offer of eternal life comes with temporal suffering. It comes with consequences in this world. And Paul looks at this young group of believers in Thessalonica and says, you are imitating me in the way that you have received the gospel, even in suffering. And because of that, it has spread all across the land. If you believe this today, know what you're signing up for. You're signing up for at least the possibility, being open to following in the same example that we have seen generation after generation of Christians who have taken a stand for the gospel and been persecuted for it. So we make disciples first by our example. It's very possible, even if you've not spent a lot of time around church, that you've heard this quote, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. That has always been attributed to the 11th century um, man named Francis of Assisi. This is the, he created, the, or was the founder of the Franciscan order of monks. And doesn't that sound really good? Preach the gospel, use words if necessary. Man, that, people put that on things. There's probably people with tattoos, who knows? Like this has become like a mantra of some people, right? The problem is twofold. Number one, the man never said it. There's no evidence in history whatsoever. And he wrote fairly extensive and so did his, the people after him. And in nowhere in his writings did he ever say that. And second, it tends to create a false dichotomy between words and actions as if it is okay for us just to set an example and never tell people what example we are actually setting for them. Our example is important, but so is our direct proclamation of the good news of Jesus leads us to our second point. Disciples make disciples by gospel proclamation. Go back into verse five and look at the beginning of it. Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. 
Their gospel came to them. Now, when he says not only in word, Paul's not discrediting the word. As I told you last week, the word gospel was regularly used uh, as a message from Caesar. It was the good news of Caesar. But the good news of Caesar never changed anybody's life. It was only word. And Paul's saying, our message didn't come to you only in word, but in power of the Holy Spirit with full conviction. But it still came in word. Paul boldly proclaimed the gospel in Thessalonica and people believed unto salvation. We get to verse eight, he says, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Disciples make disciples by gospel proclamation. And this young fledgling church in Thessalonica has already become known not only for following the example of the apostles in the way that they endure persecution, in the way that they practice faith, hope, and love within their congregation, but they have become known for being a gospel proclaiming church. He says, the word has sounded forth from you in all of Greece. Sounded forth is the, the, this, the word, the Greek word translated sounding forth is only used once in all of the New Testaments, right here. In other ancient Greek literature, it is used, to, it's used in other places in other Greek literature fairly extensively. It's used to describe things like loud thunder, the unified cry of a large crowd, a rumor that spreads everywhere. And as one second century writer uses it to describe the sound of a trumpet filling a room. And it is here and here alone that Paul uses this word, this word of sounding forth of loud thunder, of trumpet, of a message spreading to every corner of the city. He says, this is what the church in Thessalonica has done with the truth of the gospel. They have spread it forth everywhere. The evidence of this is that Paul is all the way in Southern Greece in Corinth and he's encountered Christians there who have heard about what has taken place in the Northern part of Greece in Thessalonica everywhere. It has sounded forth. The message of their faith has gone forth. Remember I told you in our introduction series that Thessalonica was on this major trade road. It was a very important city. It had a port and this major road that ran through it. And so it was ideally located for the proclamation of the gospel. As I talk about this morning and we see this passage about the word of the Lord sounding forth and we think about it like a trumpet filling the room or like loud booming thunder, some of us may be tempted to focus on the idea of it being loud because we live in a culture right now that prioritizes the loudest voice in the room. This is why evening news programs, and I don't care which channel you go to, this is why evening news, news programs are billion dollar businesses because they get really loud. And they get really loud on a topic that a certain segment of the population, whichever one you turn to is appealing to a different segment of the population. They get really loud about what that segment wants to hear. And they drown out all of the other voices around them. 
And that's just one example of the way that we have prioritized loud over love. That we've prioritized loud over truth. And so it may be here that you think about this this gospel sounding forth and it's sounding forth loud and you get fixated on it because loud doesn't mean effective. Don't, Don't loud in our culture, the way that we think about loud doesn't mean effective. Sometimes loud is actually counterproductive. So as I sat and dwelled on this idea of their faith sounding forth in this loud boom, I I thought, where else has Paul written about loud? And Paul's written about the idea of being loud in other places, and it wasn't always good. For instance, to that same church where he's writing from in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, if I speak in tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. There in verse one of that chapter, Paul describes two things that are loud, noisy gongs and clanging cymbals. Gongs and cymbals are loud, but if all we are is a, is a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal and we lack love, then our gospel proclamation is useless. And so if we're going to talk about gospel proclamation as a part of, as an essential part of disciples that make disciples, we have to understand that gospel proclamation comes from a place of love, not from a place of, I just want to be the loudest guy in the room. I just want to prove myself to be right. And everybody has a voice now on the the internet, right? And we get real loud on the internet. And people, you just see it. People work themselves up to, well, I'm going to just show all these people. Listen, that's never won anybody to Jesus. That's never set an example of the way that Jesus would have done it. Stop doing it. Here's what I'm grateful for. We at least don't have many in this church, at least that I'm aware of, that become keyboard warriors, but I wonder, do you do it in your own homes? Do you do it when your friends gather? Do you, do you get loud instead of get loving? Now, we want our gospel message to go forth. Sure, we want to be like this church that everybody knows that we take a stand for the truth of the gospel. But the way that we do it in, is in love. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way unto him who is the head, into Christ. Truth spoken in love is what makes disciples. I'm not telling you don't have hard conversations. I think we should absolutely have hard conversations. I'm not telling you don't take a stand for the gospel. Absolutely, you should take a stand for the gospel. But shouldn't we be known as people that do that in a way that is loving, offering the grace of God to people so that they too can understand just how good God is. It's not to score points or to, to make, some kind of, make some kind of point with people and prove ourselves to be right. Our desire should be to show who Jesus is and what Jesus has done as we proclaim the gospel to people. We get to verse nine, we read, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The gospel was proclaimed in Thessalonica and these pagan people turned from their false idols, Paul said, and started proclaiming the true gospel. And now here's what they're doing. 
They're going throughout Greece to other pagan people saying, turn to God from idols. This has been part of that message. We go back into Acts chapter 14 and part of his early message to the Gentile church. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Our message of the gospel has always been turn from this world and turn to Christ. And we do that by showing what Christ has done in us, being an example to people, inviting people to follow us in that. But it requires a bold proclamation of the gospel in love so that people can know that Jesus has died for them. Finally, disciples make disciples until Christ returns. He concludes, this chapter concludes with this, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivered us from the wrath to come. This is just a little taste of what's to come in First and Second Thessalonians as Paul is going to deal with some eschatological ideas, some end times ideas. Paul's gonna give us some instruction, probably the most instruction that we have uh, in the New Testament letters outside of uh, John's revelation itself. This is, these two books contain a good amount of, of focus on the end times, but this verse I don't think is focused on the end times. Even though it looks towards it, the subject is still the mission of the church to make disciples. And the mission of the church to make disciples does not end until Jesus comes back. Jesus himself ties these two things together. In Matthew 24, he gives some signs of the end, but notice one thing that he says as I read this. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray and become law. And, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Jesus ties signs of the end with gospel proclamation, which is exactly what Paul is doing here with the mission of the church to make disciples and the return of Jesus. The church keeps going until Jesus returns. We keep going. We keep making disciples. We keep telling people the good news of Jesus and setting an example to them of how they can follow Christ until Jesus himself returns. We can never become complacent. We can never look around and say, look how much we've already done. Let's rest now. We never retire from the mission of God. We pass it on from one generation to the next. Our prayer should be, Lord, until my dying breath, would I contribute to your mission of making disciples in this world? Would that be the heartbeat of this local congregation? Jesus, if we as a congregation exist until the end, I have no idea when that will be, but if we exist until the end, will our mission never falter? Will we always be about the mission of God to make disciples that make disciples until Jesus comes and gets his disciples? So what? Are, you real, are we really committed to the biblical mission of making disciples? This question is phrased intentionally. I try to think often about 
uh, this so what, this point of application that I try to draw us to. And most often it's individual. Today it's corporate because the focus has been on the corporate mission of God's people that we all participate in individually, but yet we still do together. This is what the church does. So it is a corporate question intended for Nansman River Baptist Church. It is important that we evaluate mission, that we ask this question, are we really committed to this? You may say, wait, we just heard today from a missionary that we sent several years ago, missionary family we sent years ago to Africa. We heard from a church plant in Africa that we're working with to plant a gospel-believing church there in that city. We just prayed for a group of young people that are about to go up to our church plant in Philadelphia where we sent people from our church to move there. You say, of course we're committed to the gospel. What kind of, uh, to disciple making, what kind of silly question is that? Listen, we have to ask the question. Because it can become easy for us to say, oh, we've sent missionaries. Oh, we've, 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 we've planted a church. Oh, we've got vibrant small groups that are in each other's lives and making disciples. Oh, we have, uh, we've prioritized the proclamation of God's word on Sunday mornings where the word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit is making us more and more into the image of Christ. We've already done these things. But we have to ask questions like this because is required that we say, is there more we could do? Are there other ways that we could continue to set an example for the, what it means to be a follower of Jesus for people not only in our own church, but in our community? Are there other ways that we can tell people about the good news of Jesus so that they can become disciples and followers of him? Are we still about what the Lord has clearly called us to? Because it is very easy as a congregation to become complacent, to rest on our laurels and to say, look what we have done, not what is God continually calling us to do. So yes, church, I believe we are a congregation focused on the biblical mission of making disciples, but I believe that we must continue to challenge ourselves to be known for this, not for the sake of being known, but notice Paul recognizes the fact that this was a church that did it. And because they did it, people knew it. And I'm, I could, I'm not worried about what other churches in other places know or don't know about this church. I've said that from this pulpit numerous times. But I, I, am, I do want this community to know. I do want your neighbors to know. I do want these people that are moving to the North Suffolk area by the droves, it seems like, to know that this is a place that makes disciples because we have a clear mission. We derive our mission. I waited to the end for this from Matthew 28, where Jesus says to his disciples before ascending to the Father, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is our mission. We derive it from here to make disciples that make disciples. This is what we do. We do this together as a congregation. It is the stake it is why we exist. So are you a part of that? Do you come for some other reason? Here's the invitation for you. Become a part of that. Become a part of what God is doing as we make disciples of one another. 
as we make disciples in our community, as we make disciples in Philadelphia and the Eastern Shore and the Appalachian Trail and in East Africa, may as, come and join in with what God is doing as we participate in the mission of God together. And that is even an invitation to you who I addressed earlier and you say, no, I've never believed any of this. And I said, I wanna be really clear with you what I'm calling you to, I'm calling you to faith in Jesus that is suffering. And here's part of the suffering is that your mission of your life no longer is yours. It's no longer about you. It becomes about the mission of God for your life, which let me tell you, every believer in here, the mission of God for your life is to make disciples that make disciples. This is what we do. We do it together and we do it till Jesus returns to the glory of God. Let's pray together. God, help us to be about your mission by word and example. Never giving up, never taking a rest, never looking back and saying, have maybe we've done enough, but always pressing forward so that others may hear the good news of Jesus and believe unto salvation so that those who are younger in their faith can continue to put off sin and put on Christ. So even that those of us who are older in the faith can continue to become more and more like Jesus as we make disciples of one another of our community, and of our world. Let us be disciple makers, we pray. Let that be the heartbeat of our church. Show us, God, we pray, how we can participate even more in your mission for your church, we ask in Christ's name, amen.